I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mary Beth Miller. Mary Beth is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Missouri School of Medicine. She's going to be talking with us about sleep and substance use. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're really excited to have you on. It's been a uh, long time coming. So um, we'd like to start every uh, episode with a, a discussion a little bit about our guests' training history, and we think it's important that people know, you know, some of the expertise and, and training of the people we're talking to, and people just kind of like to hear about people's journeys. And so would you mind telling us a little bit about your training history? Yeah, of course. I went to Westminster College, which is a really small liberal arts school in a really small town about 25 miles from where I grew up. And my professors there were absolutely fantastic. It was a, you know, sometimes you go to the big schools and you get like multiple choice uh, questions and tests and stuff. That was not in my school. Everything was essay, not everything. Every test had an essay kind of school. Um, But I didn't get a lot of research experience there. Um, So I took a year off to get more research experience and also figure out if I liked the whole clinical thing. I worked for that year as a community support specialist which is basically a case manager at an adolescent substance use treatment center. And that was a really important experience for me because it taught me that I love working with patients, especially adolescents. But I also wasn't satisfied with my options in terms of what to do and why. Like picking what to do with them during my time was really hard. And so that helped solidify my decision that I wanted to go to grad school and kind of figure out more about what what works best for whom and why. So I applied to grad school and got into the clinical psychology program at Oklahoma State University, where I got a lot of training in motivational interviewing and brief interventions for lots of different health behaviors under the mentorship of Brad Leffingwell. And then I did my clinical internship at Brown University, where I got to train with Brian Borsari for a year. And then I decided to stay at Brown to do a postdoc at the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies. And I worked there with two mentors. One was Kate Carey, who's an expert in alcohol prevention interventions. She's an awesome person. And then Mary Karskadden, who's a world-renowned expert in sleep. And so I stayed there at CAS for two years before getting my current job at the University of Missouri. That's so awesome. And shout out Kate Carey also. Yeah, Um, she's awesome. Yeah. I think her lineage of trainees is almost as big a contribution to the field. (laughs) as as her actual research, right? Like my advisor, so I trained with Jeff Simons at the University of South Dakota. Kate Carey was his advisor, right? So it's like, there's, she just has this web of just producing some of the the best people out there. And so that's so awesome. Also, Cass seems to show up on this show all the time. So (laughs) shout out Cass. Um, That's so awesome. That's such a great set of mentors and and training experiences. That's so awesome. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and shout out to uh, to to Thad Leffingwell, who that's right. Um, I'm a big fan of his Twitter presence, so I don't know if he listens, but <laughs> he's the only reason I'm on Twitter. <laughs> he does have a great Twitter handle. He loves it. He, he yeah, and, um, yeah, and he does a great job at uh, always advocating for student stuff. And yeah, I, you know, I'd be awesome. remiss to not mention Brian Borsari's impact on, on my career. As well. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of slid great in there. Great guy, right? yeah. brilliant. Yeah. 
he has the most thoughtful edits for papers that I he know, really does. He really does. Seen. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Anyway, great, great mentorship. Yeah. Little known man. fact about Brian Brosari, his graduate advisor, Kate Carey. Yeah. That's Wait, true. that's little known? I feel like no. people know that. No, no people yeah. know that. His, like, <laughs> little like known that, to this conversation. That 2003 <laughs> paper, I think. Yeah. Had a pretty that's big impact. So. like a thousand I know, I know. Right. Like yeah, crazy impact. Well, anyway, great team of mentors. And I'm sure mm -hmm. with a team like that, you'll be mentoring a lot of great students uh, <laughs> over your career as well. But, you know, we're, we're here to talk a little bit about, you know, really these sort of coming together of all of your different points of research and mentorship um, from, from these different uh, folk here in our field, uh, which is, you know, alcohol or substance use and sleep. And, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of know why I'm interested in this, <laughs> this episode, <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't know how many of the listeners have had a glass of wine and then like been sleepy at like 5 30 <laughs> six in the evening mm -hmm. um and then woken up in the middle of the night but um yeah I'm, I'm really curious to learn more about this but before we really jump into it I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what led you in that direction yeah uh so since undergrad I've been really interested in alcohol use and how to prevent my biggest interest is how to prevent really bad things from happening when people go out drinking. So prevention, intervention times of um, research topics are my first, my first love. But in grad school, <clears throat> when I was talking to young adults about their substance use, a lot of them would bring up their sleep and how it was affecting them. And then I did a clinical sleep practicum that had nothing to do with substance use. It was just sleep. And that really ramped up my clinical interest in sleep. But at that point, and through grad school was really just like a fun clinical thing that I did. It wasn't really a research interest. And then on internship, my very first rotation was at the addictions treatment program at the Providence VA. And one of the things that multiple veterans there complained about, again, was their sleep. And for whatever reason, when it came up on internship, that finally made me wonder if I should start thinking about this more empirically and bringing it into my research um, and so that was actually one of the appeals of, of staying at Brown for postdoc was that Mary Carscadden was there. And so I obviously get the fantastic mentorship <laughs> available at CAS, but then also Mary Carscadden was going to help with my training in sleep science. Mm -hmm. And then extra perk I had, didn't even know about at the time, but the other perk of being at CAS for postdoc when I was like first interested in looking at these things is that everyone has sleep in their data set because sleep is a symptom of depression, which everyone assesses. So even if it isn't assessed very well, I had a yeah. little something and then no one was looking at it because it wasn't a question really anyone was looking at yet. So I was surrounded by dozens of people with loads of data who were really gracious and willing to look at me, let me look at this like silly, only semi-relevant <laughs> research question. And I was also surrounded by crazy talented other postdocs because yeah. CAS is one of the few where you have lots of postdoc, you know, peers who were willing to help out with data analysis and collaborate on manuscripts. Angelo DeBella was literally on every manuscript of my postdoc. Okay. Um, and so postdoc ended up being one of the most fun, productive years probably ever of my career. I really miss my CAS crew because it was so fun. Yeah, I hear that postdoc is the best year of you. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, and so at T32, everyone, but, yeah, T32, yeah. as constructed at the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies, provides a lot of space, yeah. right? Like outside of the didactics, which are all kind of like located on a single day, right? There's like four other days where you're kind of like doing whatever you do. 
Yeah. Right? And, and, and I think, that, I think your point is well taken about, about sleep data, right? Like I literally yeah. have an EMA protocol right now and I collect what time you went to sleep, what time you woke up mostly to flag when you would have missed surveys. Yeah. Uh, but like every, every single day for, you know, how many ever people in the study times, how many ever days in the study I have sleep data. Yeah. Right. And so when like Christy Jackson had one, one of her studies, it was like, she put sleep as the filler because it's supposed to be unrelated to substance use. I'm pretty sure it was the rationale, but it was great because that's exactly what I wanted. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's collected in a lot of ways, but no, nobody really looks at it. And I think sleep in general is one of those things that a lot of people talk about, but we don't really, I think, uh, understand it as, as, um, sophisticated as we might need to, to really understand its implications for, you know, mental health and, and its associations with, you know, outcomes that we really care about. And so I was wondering maybe if we could start off our conversation here, talking a little bit about, you know, some basic information around sleep, like why is it so important? And like, what's good sleep, things mm -hmm. like that, that maybe we can just set the stage for our listeners to understand what is and is not good sleep. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that actually, because I'm going to use the word sleep to cover a lot of different sleep behaviors. As I mentioned, I'm just like secondary data analysis for half of this. And so the actual item varied a lot. But gotcha. talking first about why sleep's important, you know, the average healthy adult's gonna spend a third of their life sleeping. It's absolutely essential. But one in three to four adults in the United States is gonna experience insomnia at some point in their lives. And insomnia by itself is linked to all kinds of negative things. like cognitive impairment, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, other mental health symptoms, unintentional death via, you know, um, motor vehicle accidents a lot wow. of times. So insomnia symptoms by themselves represent a huge public health concern in the United States. But rates of insomnia are also a lot higher among people who use alcohol. So in heavy mm -hmm. drinking populations, it's like anywhere from 48 to 63%. And then among people seeking treatment for alcohol use disorder, I'm going to give you a conservative average of 60%, but in one of the, one of the studies that gets cited a lot, it's like 74 or 78 or something. It's a wow. huge number of people with alcohol use disorder struggle with their sleep. So it's really relevant for those who drink alcohol. So that's part of the reason I think, you know, sleep's important for everybody, yeah. but especially in the context of drinking. And then in terms of what good sleep looks like, um, Dan Bicey has a paper on how to define good sleep health. And this was really helpful for me because I had so many weird sleep variables. I was like, how do I put this in context? Um, he uses the acronym SATED to help you remember what good sleep is. So S is feeling satisfied with your sleep, like you're having uh, good sleep quality. A is feeling alert during the day. So having the energy to not get things done, not feeling sleepy. T is the timing of your sleep. You want it to align with your circadian rhythm. So for most people sleeping at night and being awake during the day. Um, e is sleeping efficiently, which means you fall asleep relatively quickly. Sleep efficiency is like a clinical term we can mm -hmm. talk about more, but you fall asleep quickly and you aren't awake for long periods of time. The majority of the time you actually spend in bed, you spend it sleeping. That's what efficient sleep is. And then D is for sleep duration. So for an adult, seven to nine hours of sleep is normal, but the amount that you need is going to be unique to you. So if you're an eight hour sleep sleeper, you should really be shooting for eight hours, not seven. If you're a seven hour sleeper, then seven is okay. But um, 
actually needing less than seven hours. I don't know if you all, especially in our field and medicine, people are like, no, I'm good on five. Yeah. That's probably not true. <laughs> like, I can almost promise you that your body is not getting the sleep it needs if you're only getting five hours mm. a night. But that's that's what good sleep would, how I would conceptualize it. Or no, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I think I think we get conditioned in in fields like medicine or, or psychology, right? That like in graduate school in general, that like, mm-hmm. At first, it's like I can get by with five, and then it's like I'm good. Yeah. It's like, but I don't even <laughs> yeah. remember what it was like to have seven hours of sleep by the time I'm like a fifth year. <laughs> and then you're a kid, Noah. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's why so I, I was thinking sleep. the kid. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Postdoc <laughs> was amazing for that. Actually, I was just I decided like I'm gonna sleep in every day except for academic Friday at CAS, which I had to be at Butler Hospital at nine. But I was like, I was going to sleep in as much as I could. And I like finally got rid of these like luggage I carry under my eyes. And then, <laughs> then I had, I had my daughter, April, and then all of a sudden it's, it's returned. Back. Yeah. It has returned. <laughs> Your eyes yeah, are trying to go on vacation. Yeah. It's the sequel. Yeah. And so I've, my circadian rhythm has changed as a function of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I used to be, I think a late nighter kind of person and then early morning was a struggle. And now, you know, my daughter wakes up these things at these times that kind of facilitate these things. And so now my body's falling asleep at like 10, which was just like so bananas to me because I yeah. used to be constitutionally incapable of going to sleep before midnight. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, and so I think, I think that's, a, I think it's a really important point, right. That like the, it has multiple dimensions. Right. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are just like, I got this much. Right. But like, what if you woke up all night? Right. Like that's, you're just like laying there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and if you don't have good sleep efficiency, right. If you don't have good sleep duration, or if it's kind of mismatched with your circadian rhythms, right. Like it's mm-hmm. going to produce probably poor sweet sleep quality, which then has all these downstream effects on your mm-hmm. day-to-day activities. Right. Like I'm currently drinking caffeine because of all of these factors showed up for me today, not as good as they could have yeah. potentially. <laughs> right. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I think which, which leads us partially to, to the question a little bit about how substance use and, and, um, and sleep are kind of intertwined in this way. So it sounds like really high proportion of people with alcohol use disorder also have mm-hmm. sleep related problems. Mm-hmm. Is, what are the mechanisms of that play here that are really, I think, keeping this uh, to be such a high prevalence? So we don't know 100% sure about the mechanisms, but mm. I um, I can I can walk you through kind of what we do now. I will give you like a Let's brief, somewhat incomplete review of the polysomnography literature, and, and then I'll explain why. So as a quick summary of what everyone will tell you about how alcohol affects sleep. So in adults, acute administration of a moderate to heavy dose of alcohol before bedtime. So we're talking three to six drinks in the 30 to 60 minutes before bed tends to reduce the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep. I'm gonna add a caveat right now that it's gonna, you're gonna develop a tolerance to that effect after a couple nights. But mm. in the short term, it should reduce the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep. But then it's gonna increase the time you spend awake, particularly in the second half of the night. It may also, in some studies, suppress the uh, REM sleep that you experience. It's your dream sleep, usually in the first half of the night. But I call that semi-incomplete or potentially misrepresentative of the literature because it depends on a lot of things. And these are the things we don't know as much about. So for example, there's some studies to suggest it depends on which limb of the BAC curve you're on when you're trying to fall asleep. Mm. So if you're trying to fall asleep while your BAC is coming down, then you might fall asleep faster. But if you're trying to fall asleep while your BAC is still rising, then it might not impact your sleep. Or if you're trying to go to sleep, your BAC is rising, and this is normally a time you would fall asleep, it might actually take you longer to fall asleep. 
So mm. it depends on things like that. It might also depend on how much slow wave sleep you have kind of at baseline. So people with insomnia, people with alcohol use disorder tend to have lower amounts of slow wave sleep to begin with. And so alcohol seems to do slightly different things to their sleep than otherwise healthy uh, adults. And then we know almost nothing about sex differences and associations between substance use and sleep. Mm. because most of the literature is like from the 70s and it was all men <laughs> um, all dudes yeah, yeah so um that's really an area of need um but then the other reason i say that this is incomplete or misrepresentative is because that's not real life like who downs three to six drinks and goes to bed <laughs> 30 minutes later you know what i mean like yeah. that's not what people do so in most daily assessment studies where you're looking at within person changes as a function of alcohol use general population healthy adults tend to report worse sleep quality and then later bedtimes later wake times on nights that they drink more than their typical amount um i have to add a caveat because this is my research area where I, this may not be the case for people who actually have insomnia but that is the trend for the general population and then you get that same kind of pattern in experimental studies with healthy young adults they report worse sleep quality on nights of alcohol use versus placebo and that's a pattern that seems to last over time. So heavy drinking is associated with increased insomnia symptoms, something like five years later. I can't remember the actual numbers, but it's a lot of years, several years later um, after adjusting for lots of things. And this is true, kind of we talked about at the between person levels. Well, so heavy drinkers tend to report more problems with sleep than light drinkers. So overall, it seems like alcohol doesn't do great things for your sleep, but it's not that easy of a literature to summarize. Yeah, well, it kind of sounds like there are so many, there are individual difference variables, but then even within, you know, like uh, variables that are specific to, you know, what your sleep looks like normally, like circadian rhythm, like you fall asleep at the same time. And so yeah. it's kind of hard to extract that, like, you know, alcohol use and sleep, that relationship from the, from the larger context um, of yeah. someone's life. It sounds like that's right. what you're saying. Yeah. And it's so, it's kind of like substance use. You know, we have drinking quantity, drinking frequency, yeah. heavy drinking frequency. And then you have the same thing on the sleep side, where is it sleep duration? Is it sleep timing? Is it sleep, you know, you know what I mean? Is it subjective sleep? So there's lots of variations that probably make it harder. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it a little bit harder to organize your thoughts around a specific element of it, right? And each individual person will say like, I didn't get great sleep, but they mean potentially totally different things for each oh person God, yes right? yes and this comes up all the time in my research studies i'm running right now someone will complain to me and they'll be like i have terrible sleep and i'll be like how long does it take you to fall asleep and they're like 25 minutes i'm like that's nothing <laughs> like, <laughs> that's pretty I'm normal i don't yeah. really say that's nothing but you know what i mean like yeah part of it some of the other people you talk to who say like take an hour and a half or whatever right yeah like, right we have a current battle in in uh in my house and my wife is always, it was like always really upset with me with how fast I fall asleep. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, right. But like, you know, if I, if I had a night where it took me half an hour, I'd be like, wow, that took a long time for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whereas, yeah. you know, maybe that's very typical for somebody like my wife or other people. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, and so those definitions get really tangled up in these individual yeah. elements. Yeah. Right. And then there's also individual elements of the sleep itself right? Like you talked a little bit about like REM sleep and like slow wave sleep and things like that. Could we briefly just kind of touch base about like, what are the individual elements of that? Um, so like the just sleep to help staging? Our, yeah. Just to help our, re help our listeners understand a little bit about what we're talking about when we refer to these things. Yeah. So um, REM sleep. Uh, so there, there are various different sleep stages. Now I wish I could show 
do things with my hands. Okay. <laughs> um, um, so there are various different stages of sleep um, that basically correspond to how alert or awake you are. Mm. In a typical night of your seven to five, nine hours, this is one thing people get surprised about. That a healthy adult, you're going to wake up three to four times in the middle of the mm. night, no matter what, as a mm. healthy adult. Most people then fall back asleep so quickly they don't remember waking up. Um, and the only reason you'd remember is if something else happened that you were awake a little longer, long enough to encode a memory, right? So if you had to go to the bathroom, you might remember that or something like that. But a healthy adult is actually waking up that many times in the middle of the night. Um, but then you go through these sleep stages where um, non-REM stage one is you're going to be like slow alpha theta waves is what they're looking for when they do the polysomnography. In stage two, you're going to have like some sleep spindles and some K complexes. I don't know if this means anything to you. This is what they're looking for. Right. This is brain activity you're talking about, right? <laughs> this is brain activity. Yeah. And then in stage three, which would be, you know, 15 to 20% of your total sleep time should be sent in stage three non-REM, which we call a slow wave sleep, this deep sleep, lots of, lots of different words for it. That's where you're going to have the delta waves on the um, polysomnography and fewer sleep spindles. People do dream sometimes during slow wave sleep, but this is more relevant for clinical sleep people. This is where you'd have a lot of your parasomnias, like um, sleep terrors, sleepwalking, sleep talking. Mm -hmm. And for little kids, bedwetting tends to occur during these um, stage three deep sleep. And then REM sleep, which would be about a quarter of your total sleep time. Um, you have your more high frequency brain waves. Um, it usually dominates the second half of the night. This is where most people think of dreaming. Um, occurs during your REM sleep. And so those are the things in the polysomnography studies that they're looking at to see how alcohol affects all those different brain patterns, basically, during sleep. That makes sense. And so like your good sleep, right, has all of these constituent parts, right, uh -huh. all these individual elements to them. And they usually, the signature of that is these brain wave changes that happen when they do these sleep studies where they're kind of like tracking yeah. different brain wave activity, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it sounds like people who have sleep-related issues and or co-occurring alcohol-related issues, um, this these individual elements are not necessarily the same or in the same right. quality right. Um, as, they, as they come about in the, in the night, which produces overall poorer sleep quality, duration. Yeah, uh, yeah so you factors. would think, yeah, you would think of the, the stage three, the slow wave sleep as their, what makes you feel rested when you wake mm. up the next day. And so that is what tends to be lower for people with alcohol use disorder and uh, people with insomnia at baseline seem to have lower levels of that. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that explains a lot, right? Like if that part is particularly disrupted uh, in the process, then you wake up, like I laid down for a long time and my eyes were closed and I don't remember much, but I don't feel rested yeah. uh, when I wake up, which uh, makes it challenging to operate right? Just navigate your day-to-day -day activities, right? Mm -hmm. Which often uh, facilitates like individual health behavior decisions while you're awake, right? And so here, hence, here goes this uh, probably vicious cycle of, of rinse and repeat mm -hmm. related to alcohol use and, and various other factors. That, yeah. that makes sense. It's super interesting. I think so. Yeah. And I, you know, so I, I did a little CBTI in graduate school. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that it, that's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia for, for any listeners who were unfamiliar. It's, it's one of those treatments that, you know, most people when they're 
when they have insomnia, they try and get medication of some sort, but you know, this is actually the frontline treatment. Um, and, mm-hmm. and when, when a client follows through, it's highly effective. Um, yeah. and in part, you know, it has this huge behavioral element and I'm wondering if you could walk us through CBTI. And then I, I have this question about from what you were describing, it sounds like people who are heavy drinkers are more likely to have insomnia. Um, right. I, I'm wondering if, if you think, or if you know, whether that's because of, you know, um, sort of biological changes that occur or mm. some sort of tolerance building of some sort, or, or if it's a, a shift in their actual, like the, you know, the behavioral aspects of creating a pattern of sleep that it, that, you know, perpetuates insomnia. Yeah. You know, I don't know for sure. I'm trying to rack my brain to see if I would have known if I should be pulling any lit, but I don't, I don't have it (laughs) in my brain right now. I don't know why necessarily. And I don't know if there is literature saying why their sleep is so much worse. But what I can tell you is that in the CBT trials, CBTI trials that I've looked at, my one and probably only meta-analysis ever (laughs) was looking at the efficacy of CBTI among people with alcohol use disorder, and it's still highly effective. So it kind of makes me think that insomnia is probably, I'm going to guess it's more prevalent in this population in part because of the behavior, probably in part because of what alcohol does to your sleep, right? That can't be nothing, right? but probably also because of the, the behaviors and thoughts that they develop that they think are helping with their sleep that actually end up becoming problematic. And that's what mm. CBTI is designed for, right? Is to help you yeah. shift those schedules and get those back in line. And that, since it is effective for that population, I'm going to guess that's at least part of it, right? Right. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And could you walk us through CBTI? And CBTI. so how, yeah. yeah, so how might you actually, you know, <clears throat> treat it? Treat insomnia? Yeah. yeah. So um, this, the CBTI I do, and actually even so, I developed my treatment based on the VA's treatment manual for CBTI. I think that one's six sessions. I do five just to reduce the number of in-person sessions I'm asking people to do. But either way, it's still really short, right? It's a pretty brief treatment is six, usually six-ish sessions. Um, Ours are developed in-person, individualized. Session one, we talk about how insomnia develops for different people. We walk them through the treatment rationale, what we're going to do. And then the only like treatment type thing we give them in session one is sleep hygiene. Ask them to pick one and wake up at the same time every day. That's all we do in session one. Mm -hmm. Session two targets sleep restriction. So that is limiting the amount of time you spend in bed. And I could walk through the rationale for that is to increase your sleep drive at night so that you get better Mm -hmm. sleep at night. And then we also cover in session two stimulus control. So um, um, only sleep and sex in bed basically is the thing. So no phones in bed, no watching TV in bed, all that kind of stuff. And mm. part of that is to break the conditioned arousal that happens for people yeah. with insomnia. And then session three for us is relaxation techniques. Session four is cognitive therapy. So we do thought logs. We also do something I'd never done before sleep was these behavioral experiments. Um, have you all heard of these before? Do you all know what these are? I'm not behavioral sure. Experiments? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So they're like behavioral they're experiments to test your sleep belief. I love them. They're so cool. Um, but I'd never thought of that as a co- type of cognitive therapy before I did CBTI. So that's one of the things we do. And then Can you give us an five, example? 
Yeah. So the one would be, so for example, if you have a patient who believes that they have to watch TV to fall asleep, they really believe that that's something. And a lot of times the, the people that I work with, they're like willing to give it a shot, right? And they'll just listen to you if you say they can't do it. But the reason I like the behavioral experiment is because it lets them test it out for themselves mm. and like really take ownership over, no, I now think that I shouldn't do this. Yeah. So what you do is you have them set up this little experiment where they say, okay, my hypothesis is that I have to have TV to fall asleep. And then that week for their homework, they test it out. So we're going to say, now you don't get you don't get TV in bed for one whole week and we're going to see what happens to your sleep. And then you have them kind of walk through the experiment wow. and see what happens when they don't have, but it's so cool. And I can't believe I never did it for anything else. Right. I know. I mean, those that... are some of my favorite things, right? Yeah. Like, um, I do them more in, in, I guess, in traditional cognitive behavioral therapy at the later stage when we're dealing with people's beliefs, right. Yeah. But like, you know, beliefs about being unlovable or being incompetent or things like that, that are classically kind of like defined in like Becky and CBT, Mm-hmm. Um, which is um, Aaron Beck's version um, that like I have them do stuff like that or I'll do it in an act framework a lot of times like I love doing that like I did one with a client um, not that long ago where they you know had some strong beliefs about you know it's only a matter of time before people reject them and that they're unlovable and things like this yeah. and then we had um, uh, what their partner um, write a letter about what they think about them and bring it to therapy and open it up with us and it was just like, oh, I love you so much. Like I try so hard to keep you and all this stuff. It was like totally the, the antithesis to, right? Like these things, they're just so powerful learning experiences yeah. when they're designed to be like self-generated in this way versus yeah. like, I tell them, no, I believe you're lovable. I believe that you don't need sleep. And they're like, okay, dude, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. right. And so it's just a very powerful and salient learning experience. That's very corrective, both emotionally and behaviorally. Um, that I think yeah. is so awesome. And so I think to set that kind of stuff is for sleep. It's like so good. Cause it's like got this really clear operas- operationalization, yeah. right? Yeah. Like let's yeah. try not having the telephone with you in bed. Let's just give it a whirl. And see what happens. Right. Yeah. And maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe, uh, you need that, right. And maybe you need the TV on, let's just give it a little testy poo and see what yeah. happens here. <laughs> right. And then, and then that we'll do a data-driven approach to this in the future. And it's like, oh, I've actually fell asleep maybe faster, maybe one day it was harder. Right. But yeah. overall the pattern was that I don't need it, which yeah. I very firmly believed. Um, and perhaps that's interfering with duration, quality, right. Efficiency, all these different factors that we know are disrupted during the process for an individuals who experience insomnia. That's such a cool setup. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Then, oh, sorry. I was going to say sometimes in therapy, when I've done that, Noah, uh, they, they find that the person actually doesn't <laughs> love them very much. <laughs> that's cool. That's, <laughs> that's cool. But, but, the, but the beautiful thing something that, else. It's not, yeah. yeah it's, the beautiful it's thing about the, about the behavioral experiments <laughs> is even if they are confirmed, at least we know for sure that that is representative of their experience, and not they, their interpretation of their yeah. experience. And, and they can, and they can survive there, you know, um, yeah. and that, that's a whole nother thing. But, um, but in this case, Mary Beth, I mean, I think the, the evidence is really against them. I think most yeah. people, <laughs> if they stop watching television, they will maybe not the first couple of nights, but eventually actually start sleeping better. They will so be I, just I really, fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really they will like be just that. fine. Yeah. 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 That's the thing, right? Like, and also I think the key is to set the experiments up to be most helpful for them. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think it that can that be makes, tricky. Yeah. It can and be tricky. Actually, you got to pick the right one. Right? Yeah. Well, I have had, this doesn't happen all the time, but since all my trials right now are with people who use alcohol, sometimes they pick, I want to know what alcohol does to my sleep. 
I, I love that one, obviously, <laughs> but like, it's really interesting. People come up with, you know, you know, substance related ones. Yeah. So, That's awesome. Okay. But then what? session five for us is just like relapse prevention for insomnia, just like going through all the stuff mm, that yeah. they need to cover. And then the other cool part, sorry to cut you off now, but the other cool part about CBTI that I really like that is kind of unique is that participants in all the trials do daily diaries all throughout treatment. And they have to do that because that. to calculate their bed and wake times, we have to do, we have to know what their sleep efficiency is every night. But that means that they're giving us feedback every day. And then every session, we basically give them feedback on what their sleep was like and where and how it is or is not improving. And I'm like a brief intervention feedback person. So I really love that piece too. No, agreed. I think that that's so essential. I don't think that shows up in other therapies enough. Yeah. Right? As a, as a um, intensive longitudinal designed based researcher, like I think that that should just be like a fundamental aspect of, of therapy, right? Like, let's just look and see how it went. Yeah. Right? And it's like, yeah. oh, you used on Thursday, but you felt this way and you didn't use on Tuesday when you felt like this, right? Yeah. And, you know, things like that can be so helpful just to create the linkages yeah. between like what we're doing, what the outcome is, and what are the individual parts in between that may or may not have made a difference yeah. to make just like a clear path forward for them. Um, I think a lot of people have like just such firm beliefs about sleep or about mood or about substance use that kind of interfere with some of the change related aspects of, of therapy, right? Like I firmly believe like I can't tolerate craving or the withdrawal is going to be so bad, right? Or, you know, I need the TV on to sleep. And when we test those things, they're not as strong potentially as, as they believe that they are. And in fact, are interfering with the outcome that they want to change the most, like getting great sleep and mm -hmm. people show up when they have a great sleep, uh, and they're probably like very different, I would say, in, in session from the people I've known that suddenly got better sleep. They were just like all of a sudden showed like, I've never felt this way. I can, <laughs> right? Like my brain is so clear, right? Yeah. Like I can see the future. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, uh, and it's just so great to be able to set up that reinforcement schedule for them, right? To be like, this yeah. is what happened. This was the, right? And I think that's the beautiful thing about CBTI in general is it's so much about stimulus control and about understanding these like contextual, like associative learning components, right? Like if you stay awake in bed, like reading your phone all night, your body is, is used is just, is now primed to stay awake versus yeah. to go to sleep, right? That's why we say remove all that stuff from the bedroom, right? Because then mm -hmm. it's, when you go in here, your body is, knows that it's sleep time or sexy time. Right. <laughs> it's one of those two things. Right. And, yeah. um, and it's not like, not, not, not staying on my, <laughs> on my phone all nighttime. Right. Or, mm -hmm. or these types of things. And it just like sets in motion, this associative learning pattern that facilitates sleep, right. Better sleep, mm -hmm. good sleep, mm -hmm. better sleep efficiency, these types of things. And it's like, when I, when I tell people these things are like, no, and I'm like, I'm serious. It is oftentimes that simple. All right. Let's just like remove all that stuff. Right. When we're talking about sleep hygiene, that's a lot of time we're talking about, right. Like these different components um, mm -hmm. around what's going on. And I love that about it. And I think that that makes uh, kind of what you're drawing from the literature here. So, uh, so potent, right. That like if CBTI is so behavioral and people show this really uh, clear benefit from it, right. Then there's clearly some behavioral aspects that are getting interfered with when we introduce substance use to the equation that is causing this, right. It can't, 
be entirely non-biological just due to the fact that we're ingesting a substance that changes our biology, right? right? Just right. like anything with addiction, right? That's the, the classic addiction dichotomy, right? It's like there's a pharmacological effect and a huge behavioral effect. And yeah. all of these things are kind of intertwined with each other. Um, but I think that that, I think that's a really clear message, right? That like through behavior change, we can facilitate better sleep and possibly shave off some of the parts about your substance use that are interfering with that thing that I know you really care about, whether you want to change yeah. your alcohol use or not. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a beautiful, I think a beautiful story. Uh, I w- I'm wondering if you, and I, I'm, this is maybe the second time I've gone off script, so I, I apologize, but <laughs> um, you know, I'm wondering if there's any data out there, you know, suggesting what happens to drinking if you actually do change sleep. Okay. Oh, that's what I'm doing, Sam. That's my stuff. <laughs> Perfect. Wow. Perfect. Let's do I'm it. I'm so glad I asked. Are you sure that you didn't plan that? <laughs> uh, no. It may have. It may have been planned, and I, and I forgot. You know. Um, yeah. No. So my interest was less on what, and this is why when I first started talking to people about this on postdoc, they're like, "What are you doing? Okay, do whatever." Um, my interest was less on what alcohol does to sleep, and more about sleep as a predictor of alcohol-related mm. outcomes. And I have to preface this because in sleep and alcohol people, I'm not saying that sleep is only or even the strongest predictor of alcohol related outcomes. There are almost certainly other factors that have stronger links to alcohol problems like sex, genetics, impulsivity. I'm not saying any of that doesn't matter. To me, sleep was intriguing for three reasons. So one, it's a symptom of multiple other mental health disorders that tend to co-occur with alcohol use, so depression, anxiety. So maybe it's a transdiagnostic indicator of risk. Then two, it tends to be less stigmatized than other mental health problems. So it may help people get into mental health treatment if they, they aren't ready for the substance use treatment, but hey, I would like some help with my sleep. That's such a great then, point. Yeah. And then three, and this to me was actually one of the, the most important ones. It's one of the few correlates of substance use for which we have a really effective behavioral treatment. Yeah. I mean, there is no effective behavioral treatment for impulsivity that I'm aware of, right? You can't change your sex that easy. Yeah. So 70 to 80% of CBTIA patients improve. Treatment effects last up to two years in research studies. So that's part of what really drew me to sleep and made me want to see what goes on is not, not because it's the most important, but just because from a prevention intervention standpoint, it's really promising. Yeah. And, so and another, just real quick yeah. is another one that I, that just came to mind is that sleep, a lot of the risk factors that we actually look at for alcohol use and other substance use uh, disorders sleep is implicated in um, uh, changing those factors as well. Yeah, um, so even if, yeah. even if those are involved, yeah, theoretically, um, even if those are involved, it's, it's possible that sleep um, mediator or moderator or, or even the, you know, the X variable in, in, in yeah. that model. So anyway, yeah. sorry. No, so then, so that's what on postdoc, I just wanted to see, like, is there an, a consistent association there between sleep and all these alcohol use outcomes? And that's why I just like looked at every data set I could get my hands on to see how consistent it was. And it was really consistent in basically every data set I looked at. It wasn't, this is interesting to me, it wasn't always associated with drinking quantity, but it was very consistently associated with the number of alcohol-related problems that people reported, mm. which is kind of weird, right? That because is weird. That makes sense sleep, in part, though. Um, we see could. that true for, for negative Good. affect, right? Um, so, so negative emotionality, things like depression, anxiety are usually more almost exclusively associated with um, the amount of alcohol-related problems and um, not associated or even inversely associated with drinking quantity yeah. or frequency. And so Which, that makes sense because yeah. 
sleep is a core feature of many of those disorders or, or experiences. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That makes so total the, sense to me. That's so, okay. Well, and yeah, that's exactly what we found. Mm. And then as a prevention intervention person, so that was my postdoc training. So then when I came to MU, I was really trying to look at the inverse of that then, right? To see if improvements in insomnia, which we manipulated using CBTI, led to improvements in alcohol rated outcomes. Mm. And I'm right now I'm testing this in, well, three different populations. So the first was heavy drinking young adults. The second is heavy drinking returning veterans in the community. And then with veterans in treatment for alcohol use disorder at the VA. And the two veteran studies are still ongoing probably for years. Thank you, COVID. But yeah. for the young adult study, we found that CBTI had a large effect on insomnia symptoms immediately following treatment. And those post-treatment improvements in insomnia were associated with decreases only in alcohol-related consequences at one month follow-up. Nice. So again, consistent with the postdoc stuff, no effect on drinking quantity whatsoever. The only effect was on problems. And so which is the thing we really care about, right? And and in, in, yeah. in a paper we've talked about on this show before. Uh, there's a really great meta-analysis by Mark Prince and colleagues that show that only about 18% of alcohol-related consequences are associated with drinking-related variables. Like yeah, quantity, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. quantity or frequency, right? And so, you know, it remains- So there's lots of other stuff going yeah, on. 80% right. of what's going on is associated with other factors, right? Right. Yeah. And so changing your sleep, if that has this downstream impact on alcohol-related problems, right? Like that is, that's really like the- the thing that we want to change the most, right? Like mm -hmm. drinking isn't inherently bad or good unless you're experiencing unwanted consequences as a function of your use, right? right? And so I think that, that yeah. that's really interesting that we're able to kind of bypass entirely the use by changing sleep, be modify the, the experience of, of problems. Alcohol related problems, yeah. That is I awesome. I'm like so glad it worked in the first study, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, so we'll see totally. what happens with the other ones, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. always work out worked that way, one. right? Like you're like, I have this fantastic <laughs> hypothesis. Yeah. And it and doesn't, it does, yeah. It's actually super nuanced and incredibly complicated <laughs> to the fact that it has yeah. very little translational uh, uh, value, right? But this one's like super clear, right? Like we changed their sleep, the problems went down. Yeah. Right. That's great. So how are things going on with the, with the veteran study? I know COVID's really gotten in the way, oh, things, but yeah, I don't, um, recruitment is such an issue. I'm so I went ahead tough. and submitted my first R01 just in case those ones don't work out. You know, I was like, we've yeah, got good data now, <laughs> um, yeah. but we'll see. I don't know the, I can tell you with the veterans in treatment at the VA, they're really interested. They want to do it. Yeah. Um, but it's also really tricky because a lot of them, it's more, I didn't design this for Columbia. I designed it for Providence. Hmm. And the veterans here, it's a, more of an inpatient program. And then Missouri is very, very rural. So yeah. they leave and it is so hard to get them back. But um, yeah, so yeah. Far we're doing okay. The veteran just, everything studies, has to be remote. So Yeah. The veteran studies I've been a part of have been, you know, difficult, you know, especially when you start narrowing down people who drink, people who drink heavily, uh, people with insomnia, insomnia, right? Oh. I mean, it's a very small, you know, or increasingly small population. You know, there's another uh, substance, I think, that often comes up in the conversation with, mm -hmm. with sleep, um, and, and that's cannabis. You know, you hear anecdotally clients, friends talking about how, you know, oh, you know, at, at a certain point, I had to smoke in order to sleep, um, you know. I never even know what to say. I'm just, you know, okay. Um, 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if, what you know about that and if, if there's anything. Um, yeah. No. So as of right now, no randomized control trials have been designed to test the impact of cannabis on sleep, CBD or THC. There's a lot of like animal research and some other non-experimentally designed studies that would suggest that the higher CBD content cannabis could theoretically have um, uh, help with sleep. Um, but the only RCTs that have been reviewed, I can't remember the name of the person that did it. Really recently, there was like someone published a review of all studies, RCTs that looked at sleep, but none of those studies were designed for it. So most of the trials were talking, targeting yeah. like chronic pain or cancer and then impacts on sleep were coded usually as like an adverse event or something. So we really need that. We need some cannabis people. I want, I'm talking to like Ali Urasic right now. <laughs> like yeah. She needs yeah. to design a study um, looking at how cannabis uh, like um, affects sleep and vice versa. So that said, I think, a lot of people think that cannabis helps their sleep. It's something like 80 something percent use cannabis or think that it will help with insomnia. Mm. And some people in one of the studies I was reading, they actually reduce their use of sleep medication because they're using cannabis. And kind of in line with that thinking, um, a couple of the daily, daily assessment studies relative to nights that they don't use cannabis before bedtime, young adults who use cannabis do tend to report less time awake and longer total sleep time on nights that they use cannabis, but they also report more fatigue the next day. So maybe it's kind of like alcohol where it feels like you fall asleep quicker, wake up less, but cannabis might be doing negative things to your sleep staging. Mm. That makes you feel more tired, which would be consistent with what happens with alcohol. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there's not, we really need a lot more research there. It's really new, all the research in that area. The other things though, when I talk to people about this, I always end up telling them that cannabis, CBD or THC is probably not a good long-term solution for sleep because similar to like what we have with alcohol, people tend to develop a tolerance to the sleep promoting effects of cannabis, it seems. So it might help you for a night or two, but it's not gonna help you every night for the rest of your life. Yeah. And then one of the most common withdrawal symptoms from cannabis is sleep impairment. So yeah. unless, unless you want to use for the rest of your life, it's wow, not yeah. a good term solution. Even if you do want to use for the rest of your life, it probably won't work the whole rest of your life. So, you know, things like- yeah, It seems to follow a pattern very similar with sleep medications, right? Like they're helpful yeah. in the yeah, acute, totally. but not in the long-term, yeah. right? And, and that's true for out, basically any medication we've described so far, alcohol, cannabis, or uh, a prescribed sleep medication all kind of have this similar pattern where like, it'll probably help you sleep, Initially, if you're like not sleeping at all, this is important, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to get you to sleep. Like lack of sleep has all types of very problematic mm -hmm. outcomes, hallucinations, mm -hmm. right? Like um, cognitive impairments, things like that, that are just dangerous to go about your day-to-day. -day. Um, if you're experiencing like multiple days of no sleep, insomnia, mm -hmm. like after about three days, usually people really start having really, really mm -hmm. negative consequences that set in psychosis related things. Right. And so in the acute, it makes total sense that we would use some kind of medication. But in the long term, it actually appears to be boomeranging back around yeah. and impairing your sleep overall. And so that's that's mm -hmm. really, I think we need more randomized trials, clearly, to, to understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true for um, basically anything related to cannabis. Right. Cannabis as a, as a as a as a pharmacological agent, we all yeah. we all know almost nothing. Yeah. Right. And so we need we need 
people it's too um, variable i mean like when you're asking someone you know do you use cannabis i mean that could be asking them yeah well we, you know we cannabis have all kinds is of problems thousands with of measurement things yeah yeah so. there's all kinds of problems related to measurement of yeah. cannabis right like there's no standard dosing are you talking about flower edibles you're talking about concentrates there's other topicals are you talking about cbd are you talking about thc are you talking about the combination of those two things called the Content entourage effect yeah right like the ministry mode of administration has a whole thing right and so um these are all issues I'm, I guess I'm acutely uh, concerned with as a person who lives in a legalized cannabis state that we have the unique position to be able to do some of these studies. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm but, talking but about even Noah just Emery. Get, even, even just yeah. getting a product that's consistent when I give two people the same thing is incredibly challenging. And so you got to partner with, with, um, with industry, honestly, um, which is what we've done here is to partner with some industry folks to be able to get a very consistent dosing when you're talking about like pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics yeah. and, and things like that. But even that is like super challenging. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, we, a lot more work needs to be done in the cannabis space. Um, Definitely. what do you think the, what, what really needs to be done with this whole sleep substance use space in general? Like, where do we need to go? I am so excited about, I, I think we need to figure out why, like, why is it linked to problems more reliably than drinking mm-hmm. quantity? Yeah. Um, and looking at mechanisms. And there are a couple different reasons that I think sleep could be impacting substance use outcomes. The first would be that sleep negatively, we talked about this a couple of times, sleep negatively impacts the cognitive or effective pathways to addiction. Yeah. So George Koob and Ian Colrain, I don't actually know how to say his last name, have several, the more than one article positing sleep as a neurobiological contributor to each stage of the addiction cycle. Mm-hmm. So they say that it impacts incentive salience in the binge intoxication phase. It impacts negative emotionality in the withdrawal phase. It impacts executive function in the preoccupation phase. And they're right uh, that poor sleep has been associated with each of those constructs like executive function. But there are a million ways to assess sleep as we've talked about and a million ways to assess each of those neurocognitive domains. So the measurement piece becomes really tricky but in our first pilot trial, the young adult one, CBDI, CBTI participants did report greater decreases in alcohol craving and greater um, dis- delay discounting of large rewards. So mm-hmm. there might be something there. I don't know. Wow. But, but you know, I only have the measures I included. So um, then the other, so that's one reason that I think they could be connected. The other hypothesis that I have that multiple really smart people have now told me is really dumb is that I think sleep might actually change the way that alcohol is metabolized. Um, if that were true, I think it would be more of a circadian disruption than insomnia per se, that would modify alcohol-induced effects on physiology. Mm. But there's some animal outre- animal research out there indicating that that might be the case. And I just submitted a paper that seems to support that hypothesis a little bit. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. And if anyone wants to do an alcohol administration study with me on this, then... You should call me because I'm really excited. But wow. I really have had multiple people tell me that that's stupid and there's no way that's true. So well, in, in the history of science, <laughs> a lot of really smart people have been told <laughs> that they were stupid and, and they've been the ones, uh, you know, that we, we know about and read about. So, um, yeah, you'd be in good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'll that's an it. important take home here. I don't know. Like I'm that. like, it's a research question. You don't have yeah. to knock That's an empirical, testable <laughs> question, <laughs> right? Like also- yeah. Our, our knowledge as a society doesn't grow in these little tiny drips. They're these 
huge shifts in in thinking yeah. that take place is usually what happens. You can kind of mark these like huge changes in science across our um, kind of lifespan as a society to these like game changing like are we sure like giving people mold <laughs> is going to protect them from illness? Oh, wait, antibiotics, right? Yeah. Like, you know, these types of things. And so I think, you know, maybe it doesn't work out and the risk is pretty low, right? But what if it does? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like what if it does just understanding that I think will allow us to the, 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 the key part, I think one of the key aspects of our conversation here is that we just don't know a lot of stuff mm-hmm. about sleep, despite everybody, you know, who is alive, does Sleeping. it, yeah. does it, right? Yeah. And like, we just don't understand the contours, right? The parameters around its linkages to substance use in, in meaningful ways and helping us to operationalize, you know, the individual elements of how our physiology has changed as a function of substance use and how that might contribute to, you know, wave of sleep or these different aspects of sleep, I think are just essential. Even if it ends up being not related, that's an important paper for yeah. us to say, like, not that, Let's move on to the next <laughs> one, right? All right, I was Tell wrong. somebody test it. Yeah, I'll admit I was wrong if it's wrong, but right now that's what I think. I think yeah. that, I think that the, the, the true hallmark of a great scientist is to test it, and if it was wrong, be like, shucks, you know, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. uh, there's a uh, we had Matt Field on once upon a time. He made his uh, career uh, in part on attentional bias to alcohol-related things, and then he published a paper basically like, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be super great. Yeah, he sort of right? shifted directions. Yeah, yeah, he shifted direction, but like he's at the the tip of the spear, saying like, "Hey, maybe I was wrong." And like that's yeah. cool. That's like the hallmark of like a true scientist. I agree. Yeah. So, um, I think I think that there's a lot of work to be done here, and I think we should test the questions that need to be tested empirically, as you as you describe here. And if it doesn't work out, like there's a great discussion section here that we're gonna have <laughs> to describe why why it didn't work, yeah. and maybe we yeah. should try something else. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, this has been a, a fascinating topic for you know Great. for me. It's it's, it's relevant. I sleep. Um, I and, and, I, and I drink alcohol occasionally. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as it and, turns uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> so curveball. You know, I, I sleep most days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the days I don't, I'm very upset about. So, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on, walking us through this. Um, and you know, anytime I get to talk a little bit about CBTI, I'm I'm really excited, frankly. I, I really enjoy talking about it. So um, wondering if we can shift to the take-home messages. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, what do you think a take-home message would be for people who are in recovery or who are interested in changing their substance use? Yeah, I think um, my take-home message would be that recovery is a process that's unique to you. And if there are things beyond substance use that you need for quality of life, like in this case, help with your sleep, then I hope you feel empowered to tell your providers that hmm. because I'm, I'm only doing this work because someone in recovery at the VA told me they wanted to work on their sleep. And turns out it shifted kind of my whole career path, at least for a couple of years. So um, hopefully your providers listen to you. What would you say the take home message is um, about what we've talked about today uh, is for practitioners? Uh, to listen to your patients. Um, <laughs> if, they're, if they're telling you you need something, and especially if they bring it up more than once, it's our job as healthcare providers mm-hmm. to connect them with those services if we can't provide them ourselves. On that point though, CBTI is really straightforward. So most CBT-based providers should pick it up really quickly. I would be shocked. I'd be more than happy to share my CBTI manual with anyone who wants to use it clinically. And I'd be shocked if you couldn't pick it up. It's, it's designed for that. <laughs> 
Agreed. Yeah. And that's one of those things where it's like substance use, maybe insomnia are those things where like, unless there was somebody at your program, you might not have got trained on it. Yeah. Right. Like everybody walks out of training with like, I know how to work with depression or anxiety, but like, I didn't get any CBTI training in my program. Right. I didn't either actually. <laughs> right. And like you pick it up maybe along the way, but that's one of those things that's like, it's not, it's actually not super a field from what you already know. It's actually right in your wheelhouse most likely. Yeah. And it's a lot more tangible in, in many instances. Um, and if you I think can it's get, easier, I think it's easier. Yeah. If you can get a client who's willing to restrict their sleep or if you are good at MI and can increase the motivation to be willing to do that. <laughs> and same thing with, you know, changing sleep hygiene, then, then it's, it's probably going to work. So, yeah. Um, anyway, um, what would you say to policy? I have a hard time with this one. I guess my one take home message from this particular line of research would be that substance use doesn't occur in a vacuum. There are all kinds of things like sleep that impact the problems people experience when they use substances. So we really need to provide coverage for and access to lots of different services to support people in recovery. And I don't think we do a good enough job about that right now. Well said. What would you say the take-home message is to underserved populations? Yeah, I would say your voice is even more important <laughs> because we don't know, as you know, we talked about not knowing anything about sex differences in sleep and substance use. We also don't know much about associations between sleep and substance use among people of color. And that's a particularly impactful problem because insomnia rates tend to be higher among women. And in some studies, they're higher among people from less privileged backgrounds. So I actually, um, I took some time out during COVID to try to figure out why we weren't recruiting more people of color for one of my ongoing insomnia treatment trials. Turns out part of that might be a lack of diversity in mid-Missouri thing. But I also thought it was interesting that overwhelmingly, almost everyone who participated in the study was willing and interested in participating in research. Their number one reason for not participating was not knowing about research opportunities. And so this is completely on us as a research mm. community to be better about getting word out to diverse communities. And I only bring that up because I think a lot of times the attitude is there's distrust there or there's some reason they don't want to participate. But my research, this study and other studies would also suggest that it's not on them, it's on us. And I'm not minimizing how hard that is. I know that it's really hard, but that's a we need to do a better job. Yeah, we got to do it. Agreed. That's, yeah, that's great. You know, um, Mary Beth, I'm a few years behind you, um, and um, I, you know, I've been watching your career develop um, since graduate school. Um, and, and you know, it's been really cool just to see how that has developed. Um, and, and I was wondering if you have any advice for people like me, um, you know, what what to do in, in, in graduate school and in early career to um, yeah. have as big of an impact as you're already. <laughs> Um, I would say don't be afraid to put yourself out there. And I don't just mean intellectually, as we talked about already, I think it's important to come up with novel, sometimes risky ideas that people tell you are stupid, because that's how science moves forward. But I think what's harder for trainees, sometimes is to put yourself out there socially and introduce yourself to people mm. and especially researchers you admire, but it is yes. so important to do that. And I'm going to give you two examples here to make my point. My first is Eric Peterson. When I was on postdoc, I wanted to look at associations between sleep and alcohol use among veterans. And I didn't know Eric Peterson, but I knew he had data with veterans. So at RSA that year, my postdoc year, I went to one of his posters and I talked to him and he seemed pretty, I mean, if he had been a jerk, I probably wouldn't have done this, but he seemed pretty nice and sociable. 
So I just straight up asked him if he had included the insomnia severity index in the data set. If he was planning to do the analysis I wanted to do, he said no. And I was like, could we do it? <laughs> and he said yes, which is amazing on his part. He didn't have to do that. I, I mean, I don't know if all researchers would do that, but he said yes. He gave me a chance. And we ended up publishing four manuscripts together, I think, after that wow. in the next like two years um, because he was so great about it. Um, then my other example to make this point is Christina McRae, who most people might not know. Christina is a behavioral sleep medicine person. Again, she had no idea who I was when I first met her, but I knew I was looking into Missouri because I wanted to move back to Missouri um, at the time. And I knew she was doing clinical sleep research and I knew she was working at MU. And I, so on one of my trips home, I just reached out and asked if I could meet her and talk about sleep stuff. Um, I didn't ask her anything serious the first couple of times. Um, mostly talked about, you know, how to integrate my work into sleep into the clinical sleep space and stuff like that. Then I had a K-23 idea that was related to insomnia treatment. I asked if she would be willing to be my mentor. And she turned around and asked if I wanted a job. I wasn't anticipating that, but she asked if I wanted a job. And that's literally how I got my job. So wow. I can't emphasize enough that you got to connect and put yourself out there and go meet people, hmm. which is hard during COVID. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, even just I, emailing. I, I really love that point. And, you know, I feel like if you do that to someone and they're mean to you, then that's on that's on them. Um, and there's a great deal of fantastic people in the field of addiction psychology and, you know, fantastic mentors who are, are willing to talk. That's been my experience. And it sounds like it's been your experience as well. And, and yeah, so I, I, I couldn't agree more at that point. Totally agree. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's kind of undersold potentially. Right. But I think some of the best connections I ever made were just by walking up to somebody and shit and like, back when we used to be able to do this, just shake their hand or whatever and be like, hey, I'm just going to your work or whatever. Yeah. Just imagine if you were at a poster or a conference and somebody walked up to you and was like, I've read your papers and I love your work, right? Like I might yeah. fall over, right? Because like, somebody's read <laughs> oh, this. Oh, yeah. You know, like, it right? Makes like, you feel that's good. how most sure. people are, right? And so yeah, it's much yeah. easier than you think to do this. There's a couple of wacky people out there who might be like, I'm glad you read it finally, right? But <laughs> yeah. for the most part, like, people are really read generous. <laughs> People are really generous and really great. And, and some of the most senior people out there are some of the best people out there. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there, right? Like Eric Peterson, right? Fantastic mm -hmm. person, right? Like people like that, like Adam Leventhal's been like that for me yeah. over the years, right? Just, and, and so I think find your network of mentors and, and understand that mentorship is best a la carte, right? Like <laughs> not everybody's great at everything, but finding people who can help get you where you want to go requires oftentimes for us to put together a collection of, of mentors that help us to do and provide you with opportunities like this. Lo and behold, mm -hmm. boom, you got a job. Sounds which like, is a, which is mind. like, which is like the goal in part <laughs> of like going to graduate school. Right? Like some, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I did it because I like to get my learn on, but also so I could get paid. Yeah. Um, and so nice. that's such a, that's such an awesome story. And so thank mm -hmm. you so much for sharing. And thank you so much just for joining us today. This is such a great conversation. I think it's really going to be uh, an excellent resource for, for the community. And thank you for so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're super busy. Oh, no. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah, of course. On our next episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Kirsten Smith. Kirsten is a postdoctoral fellow in the Real World Assessment Prediction and Treatment Unit at the National Institute on Drug Abuse Intramural Research Program. 
she's going to be talking about Kratom. 